Paul, in writing to the Philippian brethren, is certainly reflecting upon the time that he spent there, and we can sort of just stop and think about the first time he went to Philippi. He preached Christ, but he was put in jail. And he and Barnabas, I mean, he and, and Silas were praying and singing praises unto God when they were loosed from the stocks that bound their ankles and bound their wrists. And the doors were opened, and the jailer tried to take his life. But Paul encouraged him not to do that because he said, We're all here. We, we haven't escaped. Your life will not be required of you. And he came in and asked what to do to be saved. And he preached to him the gospel. He preached to him about the Christ, the Gentile, a person who didn't know Christ, a person who was uh, certainly uh, not informed of Christianity, but was one who worked for the government and was no doubt in a way leaning toward the Roman government to worship idols and to worship other gods other than Jesus Christ. But he preached to him. He preached to him Jesus. And he baptized him that night and his whole house. And they came in and he, he washed their stripes after they had been beaten and set food before him. And now a number of years have passed. He had left Luke in, in this place during his second journey, the remainder of his journey, from the time he picked up Luke at Troas, until he came back on his third journey and he picked up Luke and went on to Acts and spoke before Festus and Felix and King Agrippa and was transported from there to Rome where they were shipwrecked and 276 lives were saved. Now he has spent two years and more as a person who's been in prison, house arrest, no doubt, speaking to those who were bound, teaching them the same that he had taught people at Philippi, and now he's writing back to a congregation that supported him all the time during his first and second and third journeys. Well, he didn't meet them until his second journey. So from the very first day that he started that church, this church was the only one that supported him. Now he's writing back to them, and, and he's, he's giving them instruction here, great instructions that, that we today, it... Uh, it just makes a better Christian out of us to read what he's saying here. And here's a congregation that received a very few 
If there were rebukes, they were mild rebukes. They were a congregation that had had Luke training them, teaching them, and uh, had a very good record. And as we look at this message here, it should help us to be understanding of one another and understanding of what the cause of Christ really is in every location. And you can just imagine this congregation which uh, had helped Paul and had supported Paul and he's writing back to them and, and in his third in his fourth ch chapter he 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 says uh, don't worry about anything don't worry about anything in nothing the answer but in everything you pray, and you let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. And that is such a wonderful passage. And he's letting them know and getting close to them. He, is, he has that relationship that's drawing. And, and he said, before he said, not to worry. He said, the Lord is present. We would say it today, the Lord is present. They translate, the Lord is near. The Lord is nigh. So the Lord is present. And just to think that he can give this message here that the Lord is with them. He's there. He'll hear them. He'll answer their prayer. And in that same chapter, that chapter 4, he would just seem like wanting to relate to them. He said, you know, I found out that in whatever state I am, I to be content. He said, whether I'm abased, that means he didn't have anything, or whether I'm exalted. He said, I've been hungry and I've been fed. But I've learned in whatever state I am in, to be, uh, to be calm, to not panic. The word content means to, to stay stabilized, to not lose your faith. Because he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what a profound statement. And then in the 19th verse, he said, I appreciate what you've given me, what you've helped me with, and you've set to my needs once and again. But he said, my God shall supply all of my needs. He thanked them, he gave them credit. But he says, my God shall supply all of my needs. Now, this is, this is relating to a congregation that... Uh, that he was close to the congregation of that elders and deacons, the only one that he preached to that did have, only one we have a record of that had. And he's, he's really examining here himself in relationship to his love and his adjustment with them. And the main thing is that he puts Christ in the center, in the forefront. Now, in this second chapter, I want you to look at that second chapter, how that he, he asked them, wonder why he would say what he said when he said, uh, 
If there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and if there's any tender mercies and compassion, is the way some have it, it's bowels of mercy, it's tender mercies flowing from one to the other. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And what a, what a, a message that is. And in that third verse, he says, and, and you wonder why he would have to say that. Because there were human beings there. Because we all fit into that category. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It's so difficult uh, to keep out of that category because we're just all human. We may fall into it. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. What a challenge. What a challenge that is for each of us. The fourth verse says, Look not every man on his own thing. And if you, they were just human beings and they were just selfish as we're selfish today. And he was telling us that here's the way to do don't look at, at the things of your own self, but every man also on the things of others. Now, he didn't say you couldn't look on your things, on your own things. And more than Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. But he's saying here that we consider one another. Look at number five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, the reason he could say that is because that was that's a choice with us. And it, it is a choice that's always correct. But it's a choice that we don't make a lot of times. Who being in the form of God, that's talking about before he came to the earth, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in likeness of men. The role here is, is a servant role of every Christian. And Jesus, when he took the towel, he was teaching this role of service. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. To this congregation that was one of the most outstanding congregations, he was still giving the key to them being one and being like Christ and the object and the objective that we, each one, should have. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things on the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess. I think here is the challenge that we need to ask God to help us to understand. Is that when Jesus said the all authority was given unto him in heaven and on earth, that much of the time in our struggles here in, in the earth and in the flesh, now, we need to understand Jesus has gone through every test. He was tested in all points like as we get without sin. 
And when you feel challenged and you feel that you need help and you're not what you would like to be, it's because we have failed to give him the honor of being our Lord. And this 11th verse says that every need, if we don't do it now, we'll do it someday. But what a precious thing is to take Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. And it'll, it'll make you humble, it'll make you submissive, it'll make you a servant. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why did he have to tell them to have the mind of Christ, to serve others and to think of others? Yet here he said they'd obey. It's because it's a challenge for each of us. And the 13th verse, I think, pinpoints the power that we have when we submit to Christ and understand that we put Christ on and that we do have the mind of Christ and that the mind of Christ is a choice to us. That for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We cannot fight this battle by ourselves. There's one thing we need to learn is that when Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me in this same book in the fourth chapter in the 13th verse, we need to understand we need that. And why would he say the 14th verse? Why would he throw that in there? Because they were just humans. Conflict exists everywhere human beings exist. And he said, do all things without murmuring and disputing, because there's a conflict in the life of every human being, and he knew there would be, and he's giving good instructions here. And the reason for that is that we'll be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine his life. Well, what if you do fail and fall and fall and flounder and, and make those mistakes? Well, you have the blood of Christ. You have Christ and you have his power. And you never stop just because you've made a mistake. And that's the reason he said in the 16th verse, you're holding forth the word, holding forth the word of life. That is a process that's going on. And the word of life is the message, but when you hold the message, it's the seed of the kingdom, and Christ is going to come from that message, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And the day of Christ, there's a lot written on that, and people wonder, what does he mean in the day of Christ? And some commentators and scholars will say, well, that means when Christ comes back. Well, that's one of the meanings it could have. But it also can mean when Christ takes over in anybody's life, and that allows him to be the Lord. He's going to be Lord whether we acknowledge him or not. He's available whether we accept him or not. He's the king of the universe whether we acknowledge it and teach it and share it or not. And the day of Christ is right now. 
And it'll be no less the day of Christ when he comes back. It'll be no less the day of Christ when he puts all things under his feet and when he is delivering up the kingdom to the Father. It'll be the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day that Christ has the opportunity to reign, to work, and to serve in our lives and to help people who need him. He said, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. So it's possible that if people had given their lives and their efforts uh, for the cause of Christ, uh, that it could have brought even a short life to Paul because of the uh, of the people preaching and teaching the kingdom, but he was willing to accept it. And uh, he said, For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me in the victory of Christ. Now, how is it possible for us to stay on me and, and focus? I want you to go with me to the Romans, the 12th chapter, and to show you the similarity of Paul's teaching uh, to the Roman brethren and how he's thinking about a body of people and that they're all a part of that a body and that they're uh, each one, they're each members. And he's uh, thinking about the same process that Paul thought about when he addressed the Philippian brethren, and that is being a body working together as a congregation working together uh, at Philippi. He's now speaking to the Roman brethren, and this is a climax of the arguments that he's taught that Christ has saved both Jews and Gentiles, and that the old law has uh, certainly been nailed to the cross, and uh, that we've been married to another, even to Christ, who was raised from the dead in Romans 7. But now uh, he's asking them as one body, of people to how to act and how to react. And this is the climax of the book. It's the climax to, to put the heart of, of living in Christ and with Christ and for Christ uh, to the brethren. Look at the 12th chapter of the book of Romans in the first verse. It's the conduct and the godly nature that he in, in, intended for them to have. And the word beseech is the word for beg, plead, entreat. And uh, uh, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Contrary to the sacrifices that weren't living, that were dead, now it's a living body, and it's to be a sacrifice, and it's to be holy, it's to be acceptable unto God, and it's nothing but a spiritual service. In your American Standard Version, it's spiritual service instead of reasonable service. Why did the King James put reasonable, and why did the American Standard put uh, spiritual? Or it's the word psuche. It's the word for spirit. And it's the word for a reasonable part. And so if you understand what they meant in the King James Version when they said the reasonable service, they were referring to the part that took place in the spirit. And when they put it spiritual, it's because they knew it had uh, reference to the psuche in the Greek, which was the spiritual. So it's a spiritual service. It's that which goes 
on between you and the Spirit of God that's not seen, but he's here present. So in a sense, it's the same as his message to the Philippian brethren when he said, the Lord is near. He said, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ. It is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And uh, what he tells us brings it down to the, to the application of us and, and our thoughts. Look at the second verse. He says, don't be like the, the world around about you. Don't be in its mode. But be transformed. And there, there is the renewing of the mind or the spirit. And that's the part that worships. That's the part that thinks. And that's the equal to, oh, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. How do you do it? Well, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's what God has taught through his spirit. And that's the way the mind of Christ and the mind of God gets in, in you. For I say through the grace which is given unto me and to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man a measure of faith. This is conduct. For if we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body, see the relationship. We're all one body in Christ. That's hard to believe, isn't it? Sort of, it's the sort of thing we wrestle with. It's like my little finger is just as much a part of my body as my eye and my ear. You know, I might think about that old, that old dirty foot and stink sometime, and, and I don't want it around. Well, that's a part of my body. We don't say that about a parts of our body, but sometimes we may think it. So that's the kind of relationship that he's trying to get us to see here. So we being many are one body in Christ and every one member one of another. Now over to Philippians he said, he says, don't look to everybody your own thing, but look to the others. This is much. And here he's saying similar. See, you members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given unto us, whether prophecy let us prophesy. There are some people who just have gifts and we ought to honor them. We, we, we have too much competitiveness in our human thinking. The person who can speak for God, give him the praise. And the person who can, according to the, he says, uh, let him prophesy according to the proportion of his faith, that faith, and this was speaking no doubt of the gifts that they had at that time. But today it would be how a man could read the word, discern the word, and study the word, and still uh, let it be dispersed as it ought to be. Look at number seven. The ministry here is nothing but a, a servant, like it's over in Philippians 2. Like he said, he was a servant, he came, and he was a servant like we are, and we ought to serve one another. It's a similar, uh, a similar treatment here. If, if you can serve and you can help people, you do it, and this weight on your ministry means to do it. Now, we don't look at that, and we may not look at that in the English and say, what it means to let you, let wait on it till you develop. No, it doesn't mean that. It means you do it, see? And, and the weight, let us wait on our ministry, is in italics, so it's not even in the original. 
But we put it there because it's understood that if you can minister, you minister. That's what you do. So it's understood that you, you do that. If a person can teach, what do you do? Well, on that one, they didn't put in the italics. They just put on teaching. What's it mean? It means he's got to give himself to his teaching. On exhorting, you know, there's some people that can encourage. There's some people that can just make people feel good and just motivate people to do things. He said, that's what you ought to do. And there are some people that can make money and they can give. And just become, they become examples of it. And he says, just do it. And there are some people that can lead and rule, not dictatorship, but just rule and lead. And he said, you ought to do that. And you ought to do it with, with energy, with ener being energetic and gracious. And then there's some people that can just say things in the right way. For some time, I'm up, as we say, stick my foot in my mouth, say it in the incorrect way. But showing mercy, they can do it beautifully, cheerfully, and we ought to do it. And wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we could just obey this? This is a body of people. And he's writing these people just like he wrote to Philippians. And he's telling them similar, same message. Same message, it's very similar. He says here, let love be without put on. But let it be real. Dissimulation is just to put on. And he says, you've got to not like evil. You just can't like evil. Some people just sort of like evil anyway. They want to cater to it. But he's saying here, not the body of Christ. And we've got to just hold on to that which is good. And the 10th verse is such a beautiful, uh, beautiful message. He said, be affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Now, this brotherly love doesn't mean that it's, uh, it, it has thing to do with gender, but it's descriptive of the closeness of that you would be as your brother or as you were relatives or closely met people and, and, and kinship. And your kindly affection one toward another, and it's with that love that was with, uh, demonstrated between Jesus and his disciples and between Jesus and the sinners that were lost. And, uh, and I think the last part of that 10th verse is a test. Uh, this buckle that, that is coupled with that brotherly love, uh, it is done in such a way as to honor the other person and to give the other person the preference. Now, you don't think that's difficult. Just try it. There are books written on, on how to behave and how to, uh, our proper behavior between the male and female and male and male and women and women and, and, and business and all. And here is one with Christians and uh, with all men. And when our attitude toward uh, carrying on things, uh, we can't be indifferent. 11th verse says we can't be indifferent and we can't put it off. And like I was talking this morning, if we get discouraged, 
That's only a tool of the devil. And, uh, and he'll certainly use it if, if we'll allow him to. But opposite of that is being fervent. And that's opposite of what I said this morning is being uh, the intelligent action with Christ working in us. And we're serving the Lord. And when you put that with the 12th verse, if we could just put all this together, rejoice because we're going to live through eternity. That's what hope means. This is just temporary place. And when, when difficulty comes, uh, we just hang in there. That tribulation, that's what that means. You just hang in there. You don't let that move you. And you continually in that instant prayer uh, just means continuously. And that means... Or you could put continually means by intervals, but continuously means you'd never stop praying. Continually means you'd do it by annual in our English, but continuously means you'd do it without stopping. But continuously means that you, if you pray four times or ten times a day, you'd still, still do it that way. You continually might say you do have inter intervals in prayer, but you would never stop praying. That instant means you'd never stop praying. That's always there. And then when we reach out and help others, and when we have a tender heart, hospitality, and when we're able to help folks and to bless people that might not bless us, and uh, people who might disagree and say things they shouldn't, if we can be kind, we're making the body of Christ what it ought to be. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep and be of the same mind, the same message he said over that let this mind be in which also in Christ Jesus toward one another. Mind not high things but condescend to things of low estate. That's a challenge. You practice it and you, and you do it, you're a Christian in action. Be not wise in your own thoughts and in your conceited ways. You don't return evil for evil. You don't do anything but provide things honest in the sight of everybody. And if it's at all possible, you're going to, we're going to be at peace with all men. And the 19th verse, surely you don't take the thing in your own hand and try to avenge. And that may be a difficult passage. It says, Avenge not yourselves doesn't mean yourselves is the one you avenge. Yourselves in the original language is in the nominative case, the subject. Yourselves is not to avenge. The predicate is avenge, is a verb. Yourselves is not to avenge. You're not to avenge, but rather you give place. What do you do? You give place to wrath person is angry, let it be, let it happen. You don't take care of it. It's written that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Our repay saith the Lord. And the 20th verse sums it up. And these two passages are, are great passages for us to get closer to the Lord, closer to each other. 
If your enemy hungers, you feed him. If he thirsts, you give him to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coal to fire on his head. In other words, another way to say it is the 21st verse. You don't ever overcome evil, or you don't ever allow evil to overcome you. You overcome evil with good. And what a message. And the lesson is yours. And I trust that you live closer to him. And if you need prayers, you need to come forward. Do so as we stand together and say.